name is Chris Boyer. And I want to tell you guys something here today. My wife and I, Viviana, we lead the student ministry. But when I see these musicians up here, I'll just be honest with you. I see that and I'm like, I want to be like Jeremiah. I, I want to be able to sing. It is. I'm not just saying that because that song was great. But seriously, I wish I could sing like these guys. I wish I could wear a deep V and like, you know, come up here and be all artistic. You know, there's so many things to be grateful for here today. Um, specifically, yesterday, I had some girls come over to our house and they're helping to watch our kids. And I thought to myself, how amazing is this? This is something, what we're doing, what we're a part of here, the culture that I'm able to raise my kids in. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything that I've chosen or, or created, but the culture that I get to be a part of here at this church enables me to let my kids be exposed to college students right now. And they come out here and they're surrounded in an environment where they get taken care of. You know, there's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. It's definitely true. And I'm so grateful for the church right now. My kids are down in what we call kids kingdom. They have classes. And, and I just am so grateful for all those individuals, all those very special people that are down there serving and the very special people that are up here doing music and all the people that did the AV for us this morning. And so many of you guys for the Strobels, for the Neils, for the Meads, for our ministry staff. These are such amazing people. They're just jewels. And together is what makes it amazing. It's not just one charismatic person or something like that or just one amazing family. But it's just like family, 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 people, college students that everybody's serving together. And I'm just so grateful to be with you guys today. So we're going to be talking about Age of Kings. I just wanted to start out telling you guys that I am so grateful. Sometimes I sit back and I'm just floored by what God's doing because normal people don't have what we have. People don't get this because I share with my friends, my sister, and, you know, I hear about their situations and I'm like, wow, I'm like, you know, well, you could bring your kids over and I'll be happy to watch them for you. But not everybody has family close by. And so it's great being in this community. And so we're going to be talking about Age of Kings. I want to show you guys a video. Okay, so the Age of Kings, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks, a series that for me has been particularly challenging as I prepared the content for this lesson. It was something that I was like, wow. So what I'm going to tell you guys today is something that applies to me directly. But these Age of Kings, this Old Testament stuff, we actually have these books of the Bible that um, 
that are, are very historical in nature. It says this person went here and then they did that and then they had a kingdom. And I don't know what you majored in. Do we have any history majors in the audience today? Anyone who majored in history? Wow. Nobody. No one in here or you're not listening. That no history major. Okay, I'm a history major. I majored in history. That is really interesting to me. I guess we don't have jobs like as history majors. So um, that's really interesting. But okay, so the age of kings, when you read through the Old Testament and through these histories, sometimes it's very difficult to find a way that we're able to apply these things. Not only just following the context and following the content to read through it and understand the king, because you have a number of different angles. It's not just one angle. We have, you know, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. And then you have a number of prophets. The prophets lived during their time frame, and they also wrote regarding the things that were going on at that time. So you get a bunch of different angles of what's going on. And sometimes it's difficult to find out in three-dimensional context, like how it all fits together and how it makes sense. But then not only that is, well, now that it makes sense to me and I get it, he went there, he conquered that, that was his son. But now how do I put that into practice in my life? How does that mean anything to me? What does it mean to me today? Well, first of all, I want to tell you guys that in the age of kings, the Jewish nation actually was designed and developed. God first gave the law through Moses and there was no king. Moses was not a king. He was a lawgiver. He gave the law and the law was going to be what ruled them. They were given prophets at that time. They're given judges and they were given the law so that they would not need a king. You know, they didn't need a king. Who was their king? God was their king. But after a while, they started to get like antsy. They're like, you know, people come up to them on the street and be like, hey, who's your king? You're like, God's my king. You're like, well, where is he? You know, and they're like, well, everyone else has a king around. Why don't we have one? So, you know, when when your kids maybe say, I want one, everybody else has one. Or maybe when the new iPhone five comes out, everyone has one. I want one. You know, you, you meet people on the street. They have a king. The neighboring countries, they have kings. But we don't have a king. So. You know, the problem with the king is kings act like kings. That's the problem with kings. And God was like, you do not want a king. You don't know how much suffering you're going to go through to have a king. But they begged. They wanted, they wanted a king so badly. And they went to Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. And they asked him. And, and it was a really, it's a really interesting concept that despite the pain that they would go through and despite the consequences they would face, God gave them the, the nation of Judea of Israel, the nation of Israel, they gave, he gave them what they wanted. You know that God gives you what you want. God will give you what you want, even if it's to your demise. God will let you walk away from him. God will let you get what you wanted. He'll let you have that relationship that you wanted. He'll give you the king that you always wanted. But it's a king that will lead to your ultimate pain and consequences. So the first king that they give him, so God's like, okay, give him a king. And he gives him the most kingly, handsome dude ever. It's like a guy who, you know, you'd say, that is a king from a mile away. They gave him Saul. And Saul wasn't a great king. But after him, there was David. And David, actually, he led the, the kingdom of Israel through its greatest period. Its greatest period of what they call the unified kingdom. Because later on it gets disunified. So the unified kingdom, this is the pinnacle of Israel. The pinnacle of Israel is when David led it. But you know what David did? Just like what Saul did, they did what kings do. Whatever they wanted at times. Now David at the end of the day, he was a man after God's own heart. But you know what? When he had some major sins, he had murder. 
He had adultery, things that were radical departures from God and, and radical departures from what those people would really want in their life. So that's what kings do. After him was Solomon. Now, Solomon was amazing. This guy built stuff. He had acquired wealth. He acquired knowledge. He did it all. He's done everything. You know, he did it. And you know what? He had like a ton of concubines. He had a gang of wives is what concubines means. He had a gang of wives. And you know what? He even would go out and marry other nations, you know, daughters like Pharaoh's daughter of Egypt, just for like political reasons. So he wasn't a good guy. And it's very interesting to see that. You know, he actually has a book in the Bible and you never know about Solomon. Like, did Solomon make it to heaven? Was Solomon right with God? Well, at the end of his book, we see that he knows that there's nothing more valuable in life than seeking God. So we're just hoping Solomon made it in. But he's a really interesting character in the history of the Bible. And then we have his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam. So Rehoboam, this guy right here, you know, his dad did it all. This is the son of the guy who is amazing. He's the son of the CEO. He's the son of, you know, the most amazing guy that you could possibly imagine. Well, Rehoboam, while his dad was still alive, he went as he was king and Rehoboam was the king and he was leading. He went and sought counsel from his dad to help like appease the people that were kind of saying to him, hey, are you going to work as hard? Can you lighten the load maybe? And so he goes to his dad, Solomon, who's got tons of knowledge and wisdom. And at the end of his life, he did turn it around. And, and Solomon says, hey, listen, if you serve this people, they will be yours. But if you don't, it's not going to go well with you. Well, Rehoboam leaves there and he goes and talks to the people. And he said, do you think my dad make you, made you work hard? You know what? My pinky finger is thicker than my dad's loins. You have no idea how much you're going to suffer. You know, he went and said that. Do you guys know what loins are out of curiosity? Loins, teens. Okay, go look it up. It's not appropriate for us to talk about in church here today. But he said, if you think my dad was tough to work for, I'm going to make you build me great stuff. So under Rehoboam, what ends up happening is this is where the divided kingdom comes into play. This is 931 B.C., you know, you got northern Israel and southern Judah. So that's what happens in 931. That's a very important, significant date in the history of the world. For all of us to remember is 931 B.C., the divided kingdom. From this point forward, there's a couple hundred years that there's kings leading, primarily bad kings. You know, because what kings do, they do whatever they want. And what do they say and what do they think? They think, I made the law. So if I made the law, I can break the law. And some of us in here can relate to that. We have some fathers, some heads of households in the room today, or maybe even CEOs. I know that as a, as a head of a household that I'm the father in my house, you know, I can make rules. And you know what? When someone breaks those rules, you know what happens? Heads roll. That's what happens. So I throw it down. Okay. Discipline. Serious intensity. Okay. So when people break the rules, I feel disrespected as the head of the household. But you know what? We have this rule called no shoes on the carpet. Okay, that's what we do. And if you're a campus student or you visit our house, you know that we, I awkwardly ask you to take off your shoes as you're about to step on my carpet like this. And I'm like, oh, can you take your shoes off, please? You know, and I have everyone take off their shoes. But you know what? There's times, guess who walks on the carpet sometimes with their shoes? Oh, what? 
<laughs> but you know, there's a really good reason because I'm late and I need to get in and get out quickly. And I have a perfectly good reason for breaking the own law, which I've instituted in my house. So that's what kings do. If I made the law, I can give a reason to break the law. I'm the one who came up with the law. And so I can break it. Kings like to be, and they are autonomous and unaccountable. Autonomous and unaccountable. That means that they don't want anyone over them. They want to be their own boss, their own CEO, and they want to be unaccountable. They don't want to have to take account and say, this is what I did with my time. This is what I did. This is why I did it. Because I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want to be able, I don't want to have to respond to anyone and tell anybody why I'm choosing to do what I'm doing. I made the law and I can break the law. After all, I am the king. So that is the heart of a king. And that's what a king struggles with. This is the truth that we need to understand that rebellion leads to pain. That if you rebel against God, there will be pain in your life. All these kings, all these kings that, we, that were going on that for hundreds of years, they would not do what's right and it would lead to consequences. And on and on, prophets would come back and say, hey, listen, I want to point you back. I want to warn you. I want to point you towards these principles. I want to help you to understand you need to repent. You need to obey. You need to change. But this is the thing that when you rebel against God, it leads to pain. And not only when you rebel to God, but in this life, if you cannot learn this lesson, you will suffer pain while in this life. That rebellion leads to pain. But the prophets came and they said, I need you to be under authority. You can't be autonomous and you can't be unaccountable. So here, this is the concept. So right now, if I've lost you already, bring it back in. Okay, just stop texting for one second for me. Stop sending emails. Stop checking surf report. Okay, and check it out. This is the concept. So if I lose you from here forward, you know you can leave with this. That we struggle with being autonomous and unaccountable. That's what we struggle with. That's what I struggle with. And we need to understand that rebellion leads to pain. So if you don't leave with anything else here today, you can just take that and try to understand that. Because if you don't learn that here today, you will learn it at some point in your life. Because this is not just a history story. I'm the only history major in the room, which actually doesn't mean that I know more about history than the rest of you, to be honest with you. But... I actually, I like history. It's fun. It's kind of fun for me. But it's not just an interesting story. It's not just like, hey, history's fun. It's nice to learn things. It's nice to get in there and figure out the context. But this is where it becomes real life for you and real life for me. And the reason why is because I want to do what I want to do. I want to say what I want to say and not have to take account to anyone. I want to go wherever I want to go. If I want to stay here, I want to stay here and without giving account to anyone. We want to we want to get jobs that lead us to have freedom so we can do whatever we want to do. So if the reality is that you and I, that we don't want to accept the reality that if we rebel or we break God's law, that there is going to be pain. That's the reality that you and I struggle and we wrestle with and that resistance to God's will leads to pain. Whether it's by accident or by knowledge, when you break God's law, like you didn't know about the law or you knew about it and you, you know, chose to break it, whether one way or the other, it's going to lead to pain. And sometimes we also say we want to do whatever we want to do and I can manage the consequences that I'm going to take this risk. I understand the consequence and it's worth it. It's worth doing it because I can manage it. I can handle it. I have enough money. 
I have everything that I need. I have enough power. I have enough endurance. I have enough intellect. And I think that teenagers often think that. I think that younger individuals often think, and I work in student ministry, just so you guys know, I feel like the younger generation, when I was younger, I thought I could handle the consequences, that I could take the risk, and then it's worth the risk. But you can't manage the consequences. You can't handle it. And that's what God wants you to learn, no matter how much power or money you have. These are my kids right here. That's Grace with her hair down and Kylie holding Micah, my son. And I'm so proud of them and I love them so much. It's the most amazing thing in the world, being a parent. I want my kids to understand the relationship between rebellion and pain. It's a relationship. Rebellion and pain. I want them to understand that. And at some point, each one of us in here today, no matter how old you are, and if you haven't experienced it yet, or how young you are and you haven't seen it yet, we will all be confronted with this reality in this lifetime or the next, that rebellion leads to pain. And at some point, my kids are going to learn it, whether it's a coach, a teacher, or a vehicle with blue lights on top of it, my kids are going to learn the consequence, the relationship between rebellion and pain. So have you guys ever met someone else's kids that you like, like you thought they needed a spanking? I'm, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm like going out too far there by saying that, you know, you're like, man, they should like spank their kids. I had a friend, I'm not going to mention who it was and I'm not going to give you the context, but I had someone who said it takes a village to raise a child. So can you spank my kid for me? I was like, I'm not spanking your kid, dude. Seriously? So maybe in our heart of hearts, we said they needed one. For me, I'm like, dude, I would never spank someone else's kid. And it was like family. They wanted me to help them spank. I was like, I'm not helping you, dude. I'm like, there's no way. I don't even want to spank my own kids. It's so hard. But I want my kids to understand that. When they're inside the circle, they're fine. When they step outside the circle, when they rebel against the law that I'm instituting, when they rebel and they go against what I'm saying and they're defiant against what I'm saying, that it's going to lead to pain. And they feel that pain on their hindsight. That's where they feel it. We're trying to teach them that particular principle early. But maybe some of us in here haven't learned that yet. One of the most difficult, one of the, the people who are learning this the hardest way are people who are incarcerated. They've learned or they're learning right now the relationship between rebellion and pain. It's the hardest way imaginable that you could possibly have done that. There is a relationship between breaking certain laws in this life and pain in this life. But some of the kings that, we're, that we see in the Old Testament in history, they had such a hard time understanding that. And you might be caught in this particular scenario right now. You may think that you have enough, what it takes, you can manage the consequences, but you can't. You're locked up with God. And I put a picture of, of a wrestler here, but I mean, I don't know who these wrestlers are, what kind of wrestling. We have a lot of great wrestlers in, in this church, but, uh, you know, you might feel like you're locked up with God and you're wrestling with God. And I used to wrestle with my dad, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to wrestle my dad. I always wanted to take him down, you know, and he's big. He's like 290 pounds. And I was like a little kid, you know, and I would always wrestle. My mom would say, someone's going to get hurt. I don't think it's going to be your dad. So if you guys are locking up with God and you're trying to wrestle, you feel like you're in a wrestling match with God. If you feel an internal battle raging inside of you, it's because each one of us wants to fundamentally be a king. We fundamentally want to be autonomous and unaccountable. And we fundamentally don't want to accept the fact 
that rebellion leads to pain. Today, as you're here, you might be at the beginning of this process to understanding that. Some of us in here have already learned this. We understand it. We're, we're actually putting it into practice. But whether you're here for the first time or you're a regular church attender or you're a member, all of us have to understand the concept that rebellion leads to pain. And to illustrate this point, I want to show you guys one specific king. So I, I introduced you to some of the history of what's happened so far. And we're going to zero in on the final king, the last king. Not a king who knew that he was going to be the last king. But we're going to zero in and show you and illustrate because this king, his name is King Zedekiah. He had God sitting there and God was already frustrated. God was already up to here. God had said one, two, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths. And God was there like, and, and you know, when I was a kid, I learned fractions really early because my mom would do that. And I know I could tend to do that with my kids as well. But, you know, God was like on the first syllable of three, King Zedekiah. Let me tell you about who King Zedekiah is. In 597 B.C., this is at a time when the Babylonian Empire ruled the world. They ruled the world. It was the biggest, most powerful kingdom in the world. And you got little, like, you know, you got the southern kingdom down there of Judah. And over Judah, you have a, a king who basically rebelled against the Babylonian Empire. And when he rebelled against the Babylonian Empire, the, the Babylonians came in, they, they knocked down the walls. And when they knocked down the walls, they took the king out. And this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, he would take kings and he would make them like basically he gathered a king collection. Do you collect anything? You collect stamps, you collect, I don't know, hats, maybe you collect uh, different things. But, you know, he had a king collection. And so he would, he controlled everything and he made Judah a vassal state. So when that vassal state, which was to pay taxes to Babylonia, when they rebelled, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came down, he conquered it and he put this king in named King Zedekiah, the final king of the king of Judah. The name of, uh, of the king before him was Jehoiakim that was taken up out to, uh, out to Babylonia. And so they raided the temple, they took everything, they put this king there named Zedekiah. And so we're going to pick it up there. He gave him a couple things. He said, do not raise taxes. And there was a prophet there at this time named Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of these like really intense prophets. He has a book in the Bible. It's called Jeremiah. And so he basically would talk and try to help this king. And we're going to see that here. He was the one trying to help him, help King Zedekiah during this time frame to show him that he needs to be submissive to God's will and understand the relationship between rebellion and pain. So here we're going to pick it up with King Zedekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. Right there we could see we have a problem. Anyone else see the problem there? I lead student ministry, remember? Okay, the whole frontal lobe is not fully developed until they're like 21 or 22 years old. There's an issue here. He's king at 21 years old and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. So Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, has this opportunity. He has an opportunity that he can humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, and he can humble himself before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, or he can continue on in doing what he's doing. 
He has an opportunity to help the people who he's leading and lead them in a good direction or steer them in a wrong direction. You know, we here at Lighthouse Church of Christ, we're interested in helping people. That's what we want to do. We want to study the Bible with people. I've been in a lot of Bible studies. I haven't been in that many lately, to be honest with you. I would like to be in more. And we want to help people by sitting down and getting in a Bible study. And what we do in the Bible study, we have a simple Bible study series called the Core Four. And the Core Four, it's like three one-hour studies, let's say. And the Core Four is designed in order to help, in a very simple way, explain and help you to lead you to dedicating yourself and devoting yourself to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus. So Zedekiah has an opportunity to lead people here, and he makes a huge mistake. But you know what? In my process of helping other people study the Bible, I've seen a lot of people make mistakes. In my process of seeing people be in the church and leave the church and make mistakes and come back, I've seen a lot of huge mistakes made. You know what? Even in my own life, I know that I've made, all of us here, we could take about 30 seconds and say, dude, we've all made a lot of big mistakes. But here, Zedekiah makes one of the biggest mistakes that you could possibly imagine. It's just like the stupidest thing you could ever imagine doing. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him take an oath in God's name. That's what it says in verse 13, that he rebels against the largest, most powerful empire in the world. Now, let me give you a relevant, like, understanding of what that might be like. So he rebelled, like, okay, he rebelled. Maybe he, like, thought he could do it. Like, I've seen 300, you know, maybe he could do it. I've seen Braveheart. But here, this is like, maybe like the city of Big Bear, rebelling against the state of California. Okay, so the city of Big Bear, they're like, oh, we have an advantage, we're up on a hill. You know, maybe there's like a lot of people who have guns up there because they're a little bit like rednecks maybe that they just live up there all year. And they want to make their own, they're like, no, we're rebelling against California. We're not paying taxes. We are our own kingdom. Have you seen the naval bases in San Diego? Have you seen the naval bases that are in San Francisco? There's Air Force bases out in the desert. It's like, come on. Anybody been down to Camp Pendleton? I live like 30 miles from there. I hear the bombs going off when I live like 15 miles from there, 20 miles from there. And you'd hear bombs going off. You seriously, and you just, you'd hear it. And it was like really intense. I don't care how much firepower they have in Big Bear. They're going to get taken down. They have no idea what they were doing. So Nebuchadnezzar hears that King Zedekiah is rebelling and he sends an army down there to take him out. So he wanted to get Zedekiah out of there. So Zedekiah. King Zedekiah wakes up one morning, he's having his coffee, and they say, Zedekiah, you need to come up to the wall. So Zedekiah goes up to the wall and he looks outside and puts his head up. Yep, sure enough, there's Nebuchadnezzar's army. So obviously, who does he consult? The prophet. He get, goes to Jeremiah and starts talking to Jeremiah. He's like, what should I do? What do I need to do? He's like, Jeremiah's like, you need to humble yourself. You need to fall down, open those gates, go out those gates, fall on your knees and ask for mercy and you will not be hurt. So, of course, Zedekiah said, yeah, right, dude. There's no way I'm going out there right now. Are you serious? I'm not going out there. Thanks, Jeremiah. But no thanks. So, but what happens is, like, soon after that, the army packs up and they leave. 
So Zedekiah is there, and he didn't do what Jeremiah the prophet said. And then they see the, the, the army packing up and leaving. And you're like, he's like, calls Jeremiah back in. Like, ha ha, that's what's up. I didn't even do what you said. And he left. I'm all good. There's like dancing in the streets. Everyone's fired up. They're like, I didn't even obey. And I'm getting like to reap the, the rewards of doing whatever I want. It's amazing. It's awesome. But check it out. What we found out later is that that small army that was there, that army had a go to help as reinforcements to fight against one of their other enemies. So they had been there setting up seed works, but then they basically pulled out and went somewhere else. So now they're off in this enormous battle, getting angrier than ever. And then guess what? They're going to come back. In 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 1, we'll see another angle here. It continues on in the story. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the 10th day of the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. Here what we see is now Nebuchadnezzar came down. He brought his entire army. He brought everyone. He brought the whole entire thing, the the maids, the cooks, the slaves. They basically came out. And now Zedekiah, we need you to come up to the wall. He comes up there, sticks his head over the wall, and there's a vast army. There's towns that have been built around the city of Jerusalem entirely around. It's like building five towns the size of Jerusalem around it. Now Zedekiah is in some trouble. So it says the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So did you see that? King Nebuchadnezzar arrived in the ninth year of his reign. Now it's been under siege. They built a wall around it of stone and wood and and mud and earth. They they built this enormous wall. It was under siege. And they were basically going to starve the city to death. Two years into it. Two years into it. Nebuchadnezzar still camping out. They basically built a city around Jerusalem to put it underneath, underneath siege. So you can imagine Jeremiah like calling... You know, getting desperate after all, call Jeremiah, get in here. Get Tim back in here. Dude, Jeremiah, what do I need to do? Can you pray for me? He's like, I'm not going to pray for you. You want me to pray for you? I told you what you need to do. Why would you ask me to pray for you? What you need to do is you need to break down those doors, go out there, and throw yourself down and surrender. You have been given chance after chance, and you only have one option, Jeremiah tells him. So here he says in Jeremiah, now we're going to look at Jeremiah, a take from Jeremiah and what he has to say. Jeremiah, the prophet. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you surrender to the officers, the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and the city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the king, to the officers of the king of Babylon, This city will be given to the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. In other words, as you go down, if you want to disobey, if you don't want to understand this relationship between rebellion and pain, if you want to be a king that wants to be autonomous and unaccountable, then you are going to go down. But not only you, your whole family. When you go down, your family's going down with you. When you go down, your whole kingdom goes down with you. As we do Bible studies with people and we try to help them, I read this passage of scripture that has an illustration in Luke 14 about a king going to war against another king. And he's going to consider when he sits down, you know, each one of us, 
are kings. You're a king. Even if you're 15 years old and you're in the student ministry or you're 21 years old and you're the college ministry or you're, you know, leading your own household, we are all kings, every single one of us. And we are leading a kingdom. That's everyone who we influence. And whether or not we want to submit and surrender, it's not just us going down. It's everyone who we have the opportunity to influence. We need to throw open the gates and go out and surrender. So, of course, he's afraid to go out. He's afraid he's going to die if he goes out. Jeremiah says, you're not going to be harmed if you go out. But he's so prideful. You've got to quit being so prideful, King Zedekiah. You've got to go out there and just throw I'm telling you, listen to me. God will spare your life if you go out there. This is your last chance. You need to go out there. So this is all dramatic. This is a dramatic whole story that I've told you. So we're here now, and, and I've told you guys the, the entire story of basically uh, what has, has come up to this point. And, and um, you know, it's been dramatic. You know, it's stuff that movies are made of. Um, you know, armor and dust and, and famine and, uh, you know, people are, are dying. People are probably eating their horses and stuff like that. It's all, it's all intense. But you know what? This is just a Hollywood production, a large-scale, dramatic illustration of what's going on, perhaps, in your life today. This is probably just a dramatic story told to help me to understand that I can't be autonomous, that I need to be underneath God's rule, and that I can't be unaccountable, that I have to give an account for what I'm doing. And I need to learn to understand the relationship between rebellion and pain. This is just a blown up example of that. Maybe some of you in here today are beginning to face the consequences. You're beginning to face the consequences of your rebellion and beginning to face the consequences of saying, I want to do what I want to do. And you've seen some of them. You've seen some of the, ex- the consequences of being autonomous. And I know there were so many before I became a Christian, but even as a Christian, even if you're a Christian in here today, this is not outside of your scope. You might be locked up with God in a wrestling match. All of a sudden, you're going to be surrounded. This is the human condition that we go through, the wrestling match with God. At some point, we're going to find ourselves locked up with God and we're going to get taken down. You know, it's so hard for us because we feel like we're giving up so much because we don't understand how much God loves us and how what we're giving up in this life is so little relative to what we're getting in the long run. We don't understand how God's grace is so big and we don't understand how God is not punishing us because we're his enemy. God is not making it hard for us in this life, but God loves us as a father loves their children. And as a father disciplines their children, God disciplines us as well. So here in Jeremiah 38, 20, it goes on. He says, they will not hand you over. Jeremiah replied, obey. Obey. One of your favorite words and my favorite words is obey. We, we don't like to hear it. We don't like to hear it. But as a parent, I know that I'm trying to teach my kids to obey. God is trying to teach us. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender... Basically, you're going to die. This whole city is going to die. This kingdom is going to lay in ruins. You and your family will die for sure. So the consequence of all this, 586 B.C., we'll see the conclusion of the story. This is another very important date for you to remember, 586 B.C. 
The ninth day of the fourth month, the famine, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. That's not Nebuchadnezzar's army. That's King Zedekiah and his army. They broke through the wall and they fled at night, running away. They abandoned their kingdom. They abandoned Jerusalem, running away. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And basically, all of his uh, soldiers abandoned him. He was captured there at that moment. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where the sentence was pronounced on him. Remember how the king Nebuchadnezzar, he had a collection of kings. He takes King Zedekiah back to Babylonia in order to be part of his collection. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. They killed his sons before his eyes and then removed his eyes. Imagine if that was the last thing you saw, your sons being killed in front of you. And your daughters, maybe they were killed as well, no doubt taken into captivity to be slaves. That was the last thing that you would see. That right there for me is something that I don't want to see. And so I feel I need to understand this concept. That this is gory, this is intense, it's overly dramatic. But why is this in the Bible? Why did God put this history in the Bible? Why did God give us these stories of these kings? Why is God showing us this? Why did someone take time to write this down? God was not trying to pay the nation back and get them and just get at them. But he was trying to win them back. He's trying to win them back. He's trying to win you back. He's trying to win me back. He's trying to win our kids back. God will go to great lengths to get us back. The reason that letter that you never wanted found was found. The reason that your boss found out what you said. The reason that you were caught in adultery. The reason you were caught stealing. The reason that you got caught. It's because God disciplines those he loves like a good father. God went after the nation of Israel because he loved them. God is coming after you because he loves you. God is coming after you because he loves you. They belong to him. And that was something that they just did did not understand. God did not spare his own son to gain your salvation. He will not spare your wealth, health, marriage, or career to get your attention. God did not spare his own son in order to get you in a right relationship with him. He gave up the ultimate sacrifice. If he did that, God is going to be willing. Is he going to be willing to sacrifice your marriage? How about your wealth? Is he going to... How about your kids, your health? Is, he gonna, is there anything that God is going to reserve in order to get your attention? God is trying to get each one of our attention here today. He wants us in a right relationship with him. Here he says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, John quoting Jesus, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He wants us to repent. He wants us to change our ways. He wants us to make a 180 degree turn. That repent means when you're traveling north, 
You're going to get off the off ramp. You're going to go underneath the under overpass. You're going to get back on going the other direction. It means you have a total mind shift and your mind has been transformed by what you understand and what you believe and what you've experienced. Your experience getting to know God that you've been completely transformed. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Jesus is knocking not because he can't get in, but he's knocking because he wants you to be willing to have a relationship with him. He's knocking and he wants to be let in, not just to be your savior. Jesus didn't come here just to be a savior. Jesus came here to be our king. And he's going to keep knocking and you're going to keep getting caught. And you're going to keep getting caught and he's going to keep knocking. He's going to keep sending people in your life to help you understand what you need to understand. You know what it is right in here today. You guys are all sitting very straight faced. Because there's one thing that you can think of that God's been trying to get your attention. Whether it's alcohol has become a friend to you and it's taking priority. You're looking forward to getting home and having a little bit, having a drink. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe pornography has captured you. It's enslaved you. Maybe it's a relationship that you shouldn't be in. Maybe you're living in a place that you need to leave here and go pack up your stuff and get out of there because you don't belong there and you know it. For some of us, maybe it's a move out for others of us. Maybe it's just things that we need to change that are in our day-to-day life that God's been calling out to us about our pride, about a way that we are handling our money, a way that we handle our time, a way that we handle our relationships. Here's a picture of me. This is in 2010. And this is one of my good friends. His name is Damian Charlie. He's a college campus minister. Um, and he went to Vanderbilt. So he's a football player from Vanderbilt. Great guy. Love him a lot. I showed up in this... Uh, I went to a conference here in our church. We're part of a network of churches all over the world. And here in our church, we, we go to these conferences and they're really encouraging. This particular conference was called the ILC, the International Leaders Conference, in 2010 in Miami, Florida. At this point in time, I had been in El Salvador for one year. We had left here. We went down to El Salvador and we went as like volunteer missionaries. We were going to get jobs. We were going to work. We are going to be part of the church. We are going to share our faith. We are going to help disciple. We are going to do whatever. I went, I went down to El Salvador and I, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I didn't know the language. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no security. I had no friends. I'm part of a new church. I went from one lifestyle to a completely new and different lifestyle. It was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. It was a moment in my life that there's just no other time that I've had such a hard time. There were many days and many nights that I spent crying and crying during this time. And I went up after a year of being there in El Salvador. I went to this ILC conference back in the United States. And I, was, I went there very eagerly, very excitedly. And in fact, some, remember I told you the families here are amazing? The families here, there are people who contributed to me getting the airline ticket that contributed to me going to that conference. That the people here contributed to me going to that, which is just, it's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. But... The thing that I walked into that conference with, I've been going through such a hard time. I was probably locked up with God and, you know, trying to be autonomous and not understanding the rebellion pain relationship. And I went in there and the very first lesson that I walked into, I was walking through the doors. Lesson I haven't even started. There's not even a song playing. I'm walking through the doors and I could hardly hold it together. I could hardly keep myself from crying. I I sat down. We started singing. 
tears start coming. I'm like sniffling. Eventually, within two or three songs and one prayer, I was a mess. I couldn't hold it together. I couldn't stop crying. I was like, what does everybody think about me that's sitting around me right now? I was like, dude, I'm really okay. I'm like, I'm, I'm all right. I'm like, I'm okay. I just can't stop crying. I was like, dude, it was, it was like out of this world. There was nothing like, I was like, I was a total, total mess. It was so hard. And that crying, it kept coming. Like it happened that entire time. And then it was like the next day and the next day. And then I went home and reflected on it. And I cried more. It was so intense. I feel like I had gone through such a hard time and I was probably locked up with God about a bunch of stuff. And God was just calling me back. God was using prophets in my life like Jeremiah. And he was bringing them into my life saying, bro, throw open the doors, go out the doors, fall on your knees and surrender. You will not be harmed if you do this. I want you guys to leave here today. We're about to take communion right now. I'm going to say a prayer for communion and there's going to be a song on. And the song is about raising the white flag, raising the white flag that love has come. Love has come and love has conquered. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time to be here today. Thank you for this amazing place that we get to meet, for the amazing people that fill this place and that we get to engage with here today. Uh, Thank you, Father, for relentlessly pursuing me and relentlessly knocking on the door for me, God. I know, God, I've been so slow to understand the relationship between rebellion and pain. And, Father, I, in my heart of hearts, struggle with wanting to be autonomous and unaccountable. Father, give me a spirit of humility. Thank you for the cross of Jesus, for giving us grace upon grace and patience and patience. Thank you, God, for being here for us and for giving us the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.